You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Bottom Barrel, the game show where the oil is for nothing and the rigs are free. It's been a roller coaster ride so far, and now we've entered our rapid fire round. You know the rules. All you have to do is answer as many of the following questions correctly as you can before the buzzer sounds. Contestants, are you ready? All right, question one. Between 2010 and 2015, which country built the equivalent of 10 Keystone Pipelines? Oh, Bill from Eagle Ford, Texas is first to the buzzer. What's your answer, Bill? That's the United States of America. Correct! And Bill takes an early lead. An interesting fact about the cost of energy infrastructure in the United States is, between 2012 to 2015, onshore well drilling and completion has dropped roughly 30% from around $9 million to around $6 million per well. Okay, moving right along. Question two. What do fracking and ice cream have in common? Bill is on a roll. What is your answer? They, I think they, they both use guar seed. Oh, and the buzzer has gone, but your final answer was correct. Guar seed. It is processed into a gummy substance used in fracking and to improve the texture of ice cream. Guar's price point was at its peak at $9 per pound in 2012, but has since fallen 90%. Well, that last one was sticky, but you did it, Bill. Becky, tell him what he's won. Ten discounted Alaska-class oil tankers. The perfect vehicle to expand your maritime pipeline infrastructure. And with the price of fuel dropping, you can afford to run these babies all day long. Congratulations, Bill. We'll be right back after the break. If anyone listening thought they downloaded the wrong podcast, don't worry. It's not a game show because this week on Adventures in Finance, you'll hear about how the energy boom-bust cycle, geopolitics, and the adaptability of consumers and governments all come together to flip the peak oil hypothesis on its head and could mean lower oil prices for longer than anyone expects. The world has never really had a large amount of gas to rely on. Uh, It's always been very domestic and... And I think this is one of the key game changers, one of the flatteners that combined with geopolitics is creating what we call the energy broadband. By having excess capacity in transportation and production, which will find a way and that will make prices converge. Featuring Diego Parilla, partner of Quadriga Asset Managers and co-author of The Energy World is Flat, Raul Powell and my co-host Grant Williams, they drill down into a concept that fundamentally changed the way they think about oil markets. Also, in our long short segment, we highlight the good and the not-so-good stories of the week. I'm actually short Brazilian meat producers, and this is a story I read in Reuters where the police found that inspectors were accepting bribes to overlook processing of rotten and salmonella-tainted meat. My long is the uh, incredible alliance between technology and toilet paper. Finally, in one of our favorite segments, we speak with a market expert about something they got wrong and try to unearth a nugget of investing wisdom with the benefit of 2020 hindsight. 
Yeah, this week we speak with uh, the brilliant Michael Lewitt, who's the author of the Credit Strategist newsletter and uh, a contributor to Real Vision Publications. The minute I think I'm smarter than the machine and smarter than uh, the guy, I might as well just get out of the business. And while at times you're tempted to say, oh, well, the machine says go short, but you look at the rally, it's going up every day. You have to have the discipline and the humility to say, you know, what the hell do I know? I'm Grant Williams. I'm Aaron Chan, and this is Adventures in Finance. Today is March 23rd, 2017, and welcome to Episode 8 of Adventures in Finance. And to my right is my producer, James. How are you? Hey, Aaron. How's it going? Wow, James, it's been a crazy week, but here we have Grant with us. And Grant, I know you travel all around the world from continent to continent, interviewing the smartest people in finance for us. Now, I know you've been in Singapore for the last couple of weeks, but I have a sneaking suspicion that... You might not be there this week, so I have to ask you, Grant, where in the world are you? Well, this week, I I couldn't keep the run going, fellas. I'm not in Singapore this week. I am in Sydney, Australia, where uh, the weather is appalling. Everyone will be delighted to hear, I'm sure. Well, Grant, you know where else, uh, or what else didn't keep the the streak rolling? The S&P 500, it had its first 1% down day this week, which is Uh, crazy, right? It was 101 days or 110 days since it had had its last... Cue headlines of market plunge, no doubt. I bet we were reading those all yeah, week. Yeah, it's raining. It's raining uh, on Wall Street today, apparently. But it's okay. We're in the sunny Cayman Islands. And why don't we kick it off with our long short segment, Grant? Yeah, okay. Uh, do you want me to go first this week or is it your turn? I, I lose track. I think I went first last week. Uh, sorry, you went first last week. So why don't I go first? Well, mine is tattoo removal for this week. And I read a story in a local San Francisco CBS News Station website and uh, East Bay tattoo removal clinics are experiencing higher than usual volumes of customers. Um, they're claiming that the number of customers have doubled since the election of Donald Trump uh, because people are worrying that the immigration and customs enforcement agents will use tattoos as a feature for uh, marking people for deportation. So uh, this week I'm long tattoo removal. All right. Well, that's uh, Mike Tyson. I'll be delighted to hear that. That's the second week in a row I think we featured him on uh, Adventures in Finance. Now, for me, my long is the uh, incredible alliance between technology and toilet paper. There's a story out uh, in the Washington Post this week about um, Chinese uh, public bathrooms, which apparently are not equipped with toilet paper and people are supposed to bring their own in. And there's a complex of temples called the Temple of Heaven in uh, Beijing, which has been around for about 600 years, which is one of the few places in Beijing that carried rolls and rolls of toilet paper. Uh, And obviously that was a mecca for toilet paper thieves who would come in and just steal them by the roll. So they've now put in a machine uh, which incorporates facial recognition technology so that uh, before you go into the stall, you actually look at the screen and once it's recognized your face, it'll take 30 seconds to dispense uh, about a two foot long piece of toilet paper. So I just think um, after years and years of trying to perfect facial recognition technology, it's finally getting into the places that need it the most, which is uh, which is bathrooms in Beijing. Two, two feet is pretty generous, but maybe that's because it's one ply. Um, I don't think they have the butt. But Grant, uh, you actually, it's interesting that it's called uh, Temple of Heaven because I remember uh, traveling to China in 2007 and, oh, man, I just remember the dilapidated uh, condition of the public toilets and maybe it's improved. Uh, this is the one of the few toilet public toilets in, in the country that actually have uh, toilet paper. So maybe that's why it's called Temple of Heaven. 
Well, I mean, not to get too scatological, but the the article is actually it's actually very amusing. But they were interviewing one of the guys, uh, one of the attendants there, and 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 I quote this um, with tongue firmly in cheek. He said, "If we encounter guests who have diarrhoea or any other situation in which they urgently require toilet paper, then our staff on the ground will directly provide the toilet paper." So um, I suspect the uh, the line for that job is not going to be particularly long, but. Um, if that is your chosen profession, then Beijing is going to be a good place to go. All right. Well, look, um, on that bum note, let's move on to uh, the shorts, shall we, Aaron? What's your short for the week? Oh, man. Uh, this, is not, this is not on purpose at all. You, know, you mentioned diarrhea. I'm actually short Brazilian meat producers. And this is a story I read in Reuters where after a two-year police investigation, uh, which was codenamed, this investigation was codenamed Weak Flesh, which as an investigation name, I think is pretty weak sauce. But anyways, the police found that inspectors were accepting bribes to overlook processing of rotten and salmonella-tainted meat in um, meatpacking companies uh, and factories in in Brazil, Uh, to the point where China and the EU just recently suspended Brazilian meat imports. Uh, Now, animal products represent 7.6 to 8% of Brazilian GDP, and about 33% of Brazil's meatpacking exports go to China. So this is terrible news for a country that's been in recession since uh, second quarter of 2014. Uh, but maybe there are some opportunities for some other meat-producing countries. Uh, but yeah, Grant, for this week, I am short Brazilian meat producers. Well, we are both uh, in the same part of the world for our shorts this week, Aaron. I am also uh, on the same continent as you. And uh, look, it's an easy short, but uh, they just keep giving me more reasons to do it. This week, I am short Venezuela. Um, and the reason I'm short Venezuela is a story about uh, the government's reaction to a bread shortage and that is uh, to detain bakers and seize bakeries. There's a fantastic story in the Miami Herald this week, uh, and the, the caption to the picture at the top is, Venezuelan authorities escort an errant bread maker out of a shop in Caracas. Now, the government is cracking down on this. Um, obviously, the, 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 the president of the Industrial Flour Union, yes, there is one of those in, in Caracas, which represents 9,000 bakeries, said that the government uh, is actually the cause of the problems because they're not importing enough wheat. As he correctly points out, if you don't have wheat, you don't have flour, and if you don't have flour, you don't have bread. But um, the government in Venezuela, as they tend to do, have left this to somebody called the National Superintendent for the Defense of Socioeconomic Rights, only in Venezuela, um, uh, who has charged four people and seized two bakeries. So uh, I am short Venezuela, which is uh, just a complete mess, which gets messier every time I read anything about it. Uh, any indication of what the black market price for bread may be? Uh, I have no idea, but one would imagine it's probably uh, higher than that of toilet paper in Beijing. <laughs> All right, well, look, we need to move on. So let's get into this week's uh, commentary feature. And this week... Um, Raul and I revisited uh, an interview with a friend of both of ours, a guy called Diego Parilla. Um, and I interviewed Diego in Singapore in March of 2015. Now, Diego's a partner at Quadriga Asset Management, and he's a co-author with Daniel Lacalle of a book called The Energy World is Flat, which is a tremendous, tremendous read. Um, and I sat down with Diego, and Raul and I both remarked after the interview uh, what a spectacular conversation it was, and so we thought we'd go over it for you. So Grant, this interview with Diego Perea, I remember Diego from when I used to work at Goldman Sachs, and he was a smart guy in the energy um, group, and you said you were going to interview him. I thought, well, I'll be interested to see what he has to say, and I wasn't quite prepared for how blown away I would be by this interview. It completely changed my view about everything going on in the energy world, how energy plays out, 
and also about how I thought about inflation, all sorts of things. I thought it was absolutely incredible. I learned something that I hadn't ever learned before in this, which was really what happens to commodities after a collapse and and the way that he put it so eloquent, eloquently in the energy world is flat. I thought it was just brilliant. Yeah, well, and, and it, you know, to me, what it really drove home was what happens when markets are allowed to function, you know, and companies that are not viable are allowed to go bankrupt and not held up as, as zombie companies. You know, as we get into this interview, people are going to understand where Diego was going with it. And, you know, and uh, to your point, I remember calling you when I finished this and saying, man, that was a fantastic piece with Diego. And uh, and your reaction when you listened to it was like, holy crap, this is, this is really important. So I think as we go through this, people are going to really get a sense of, of how it changed both of our thinking, and hopefully it's going to help them uh, get some clarity around thinking in, in, a, in a part of the markets which is uh, really in focus right now. Absolutely. Let's roll the tape. Now, one of the things that we talk about in the book is the two sides of the energy geopolitical coin. And the, the thing is that consumers defend themselves. So throughout these years, what we've done is aware, I would say that the first crisis caught the West very much by surprise. But if you think about the reaction from consumers, ever since the first uh, big crisis in, in, in 73 and then 79 and the 80s, consumers have taken a number of steps to protect themselves against these this geopolitical disruptions. We started out by, in the 70s, taking crude oil out of the industrial uh, power generation mix. Prior to that, we would burn gas, coal, uh, you know, oil. You know, as of today, it's only Saudi Arabia and anecdotically Japan, because of Fukushima, that are really burning oil for power generation purposes. Why would you burn something that costs, let's say, $100 at a time when you can burn on a calorific equivalent basis something that might cost you, you know, a fraction of that? So one of the first things that happened was this displacement, and that left crude oil as a transportation fuel. And that is critical. Now, what else did we do? We introduced efficiency measures, so our cars were, you know, by regulation, were forced to and do X miles per, per gallon. You know, we had all sorts of measures, uh, including uh, strategic petroleum reserves, you know, refining uh, capacity, uh, obviously storage, uh, but even uh, biofuels. I mean, I find, again, one of the interesting quotes from, from uh, Carter in, back in the day was, nobody can embargo the sun away from us. And, and that's, that's very true. That was the attitude to, okay, what do we have? Okay, I have sun, so let's try to produce uh, power or energy out of the sun. But one of them was biofuels. Uh, and I find fascinating that the US being the Saudi Arabia of corn decided, okay, let's do, let's introduce by mandate some uh, minimum quantities that need to be blended not only as, as a percentage, but in actual quantities that we will have to use to turn corn into corn-based ethanol, which goes into the gasoline, which effectively feeds the car. So I find, you know, and if you look at Brazil, Brazil had a lot of sugar and they went that way, and other countries that have soy. So to me, biofuels is nothing more than one of the many, many ways in which consumer governments have reacted to A, the need for ever-growing transportation demand, or so it looks, and B, the, um, 
the threat of supply. So what you, you've done is you've created a system with significant overcapacity. You've created storage capacity, you've created you know, many ways in which you're able to sustain these shocks. And if you look through history and some of the major disrupt disruptions that we had, even, even Libya and others uh, you know, just last year, the actual uh, move of the market, those uh, sharp move up, have been smaller and smaller and smaller. In fact, these are what we call volatility dampeners, they're flatteners. So all the reactions for the consumers have been volatility dampeners and are creating cushions of insurance against these disruptions. So long story short, geopolitics, the bigger the perception of the risk, the more consumers will invest in overcapacity and therefore result in much lower energy prices in the future. I thought that was just brilliant. It was, do you remember at the time, well, maybe five years ago to seven years ago, everyone was talking about peak oil. Now, peak oil may be a real phenomena, but the fact is, is there is something else that kind of offsets it, the ingenuity of mankind. You know, the adaptivity of humans is just astonishing. So what he, what Diego lays out is this incredible series of events that occurred because we had learned from hyper-volatility in, in, in the oil market, we created this excess capacity that we could turn on. I thought it was amazing, and I think it shows how humans can change bad outcomes if the bad outcome is slow enough in coming, we can adapt to it. And I thought that was really clever. Um, although I find that some of it is somewhat bizarre when you start burning food to make fuel. It doesn't seem like the right thing to do, but there we go. Well, yeah, the other the other point that I think is interesting when you when you listen to stuff like this, and you know, Diego talks about how uh, consumers set out to protect themselves each time there was a, a, a price spike like this due to shortages or due to stress in the system. When in effect, what actually happened was governments did that, um, and the government have stepped in. And when you start to have governments mandating uh, certain amounts of corn to be grown for biofuel, like they did in the US uh, and sugar in Brazil, obviously you end up with those unintended consequences again. You get a lot of corn being grown at the expense of other uh, commodities, and we saw that in the US. And so you get these price disruptions um, coming elsewhere in the system because, once again, the government can't help themselves but to, but to step in and mandate things. So it, it, it was a fascinating uh, phenomenon when it started to happen. We saw the dark side of it. Um, but I think you're absolutely right in the uh, in the adaptability of mankind and, and these these problems that we that we get faced with, the ingenious ways we we find of getting out of them. But something you've been talking about recently, when you talk about if these problems are big enough and slow enough in coming, uh, mankind's very good at uh, adapting to them. You know, demographics. Now, there's something. It's <laughs> it's a huge problem. It's probably the slowest moving one of all. And, and we've yet, done nothing about it. We've done nothing about it. I mean, you and I have talked about this till we're blue in the face, and we will talk about it more on today's Not The Day to get into that. But it, it is interesting that that one problem is the one that nobody seems to be able to think forward about. When you look at the book, we, it's mostly forward-looking analysis, but we use or we build our arguments based on historical facts. So uh, we finished writing before uh, the, this collapse in, in November, December, but we already had a chapter called the BTU, which is an energy calorific unit that broke OPEX back. And we basically looked at what happened after the 70s 
and I discussed earlier how we started producing from new regions, how we started to displace from power generation, how we were consuming more. But OPEC thought, I'm in control. You know what? I can see all these things happening, but I'm in control. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to cut my production from 10 million barrels in the case of Saudi to 9 or to 8 to 7. So all those incremental barrels, I, I'm balancing the market and keeping the price high. Okay? And what happened is if you fast forward uh, a few years, we find ourselves in 1986 and Saudi had cut from 10 million barrels a day to 2.2. And there was no indication that the world would need those 2.2. So Saudi was kind of cutting and cutting and cutting as the price was going down. Now, this is a very, very, very important point. When a country builds their uh, budget, they think about millions of dollars. They're indifferent on paper between one barrel at $100 or two at 50. So what you see is that the lower the price of oil, the more volume they need to produce. So the threat that Russia or Venezuela will stop producing because the price is low, I'm sorry, they actually need to produce more barrels than before to produce less dollars. So you have this dynamic of what happened in the 80s, which showed Saudi a very important lesson, which is, okay, we miscalculated. The response was bigger than we thought. And by keeping the prices high, all we did is encourage this engineering and all this stuff. And so in my view, yes, there are a number of factors that have contributed, but I think that they acknowledged the reality of shale, is real, which before had been, to a certain extent, uh, dismissed by a lot of the players. Shale is real, the growth is real, and if we are the only one that is cutting production, we may find ourselves in a few years, yes, oil has been at 100 for a while, but we are out of the market. We lost market share, we lost our connections with the market, people don't need us. So I think what Saudi did is, um, the, the MPV, they fast forward and they said, okay, what do we do? Who are we helping here? And they decided to let market forces play. Because what happened in 86 is they eventually let market forces play. They flooded the market, crude went to $10, and by 1990, 1991, this, the former Soviet Union was, was finished. So I think the to be able to sustain an oligopoly where you can actually control the price, you can't do it in any market. You need certain conditions, both in the supply and the demand side. And what's happened is, in my opinion, is OPEC and Saudi in particular has realized, listen, this threat is real. Let's see how far we need to go. Let's shake the boat a little bit because there's a lot of complacency in, in the market. People were lending to shale without any real concerns, you know whilst at the same time we're making 10, 15 year investments, you know, multi-billion dollars in, in Brazil and, and in Canada and other places. I mean, in Brazil, we're drilling, you know, 10, 12 kilometers deep through 1,500 meters of salt through technological improvements that my fellow engineers have achieved that were unthinkable. And all that was because Sally was providing a big price so that they could do that. So what you will see when the dust settles is I don't think shale will disappear. We're still trying to figure out what is the level at which 
you know, you can see the rig counts going down and stuff, but it's not so obvious where they stop. Production keeps going up, right? But what I think we'll see is very clear that even if they got priced out, the cycle is so short that if the market was to rebound to 70 or, or plus, they would come in immediately. So this is a game changer in the sense that it will lead to lower prices for longer. And I think that the guy that will be priced out is not shale, which everybody's finger pointing. It will be Canadian oil sands. It will be, you know, ultra deep that are truly significantly more expensive. That's the level of capex that might be reduced, but I don't see that this lower cost, uh, shorter cycle will necessarily uh, see that. So this was amazing because this was, I think, filmed back in 2015 when the yeah, oil price right. started collapsing and you saw kind of game theory amongst the oil producers and who was doing what. And he was dead right because what happened again the people who had dollar funding shortages, i.e. the Middle East and all of the countries that needed US dollars, continued to pump at a massive rate and the price collapsed. And the Americans, knowing that they had a competitive advantage because of the strong dollar, they continued to pump as well. Sure, the rig count went down, but essentially I thought it was a really interesting outcome and it gave me a bigger understanding of how the world works and why... When the price of oil falls, the whole world ends up with less dollars. And I think we're about to see this all over again right now. For me, that looks like oil is going to fall after the largest speculative position in the history of any commodity market. It feels that we're going to get this dynamic all over again. And again, what's happening is America is getting a larger share of the world's oil markets versus everybody else. Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny how it's setting up now. And I, mean, I think anybody out there who's listening to this that didn't catch it first time around and is long oil must be sitting there thinking, now hang on a second, hold, hold on a minute. Because, you know, to, to, the, to the Middle Eastern countries, to the Russias, uh, and to a certain extent now in the Permian and places like that in the US, this is essentially liquid central banking. You know, these guys have bills to pay. They've got promises to keep. And instead of printing dollars, they can essentially just pull more oil out of the ground. That, that's their printing press. And so Diego's point is absolutely right. To them, this is, this is a dollar-sum game. We need to generate X amount of income to make good on the promises we've made, um, particularly in Saudi, the you know, huge social welfare programs there. We need to balance the budget, and it's going to take this much money, not this many barrels of oil. And I think having that experience of losing the market share as they did the first time around, they were, they were not going to take that chance again. So when you when you add all that up, you add this the, the ability to essentially print oil at will. Um, driving the price down is really not their biggest concern. Sure, they may get the added benefit of driving some of the shale producers out of out of business. But to Diego's point, the technology is is moving so fast uh, in the shale plays that that price is also only going to come down. Yeah, cost so of production massive. Cost of production yeah. shale is down to 30 bucks in many places. Exactly yeah. right. And, and, and look, it's, it's not going to go higher. We're a long way from that. It's going it's to be forced lower. So when, when you add all that up and then you look at the other side, of the, and to your point, you look at the enormous long position in oil, something's got to give. And to me, you know, that, that's got to be one of the most sensible risk-reward trades out there right now, being short oil. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. So I've, I've spent a lot of time, and um, I'll be doing a presentation on this in Real Vision, about what's going on in the oil market. And one of the interesting things is, why are the Middle East and all the OPEC producers not basically just producing more oil and letting the price fall? Because there's some kind of 
there's some kind of consensus to keep the oil price high driven by Saudi Arabia. And it seems that it's to do with this Saudi Aramco deal. And yeah. that Saudi Aramco, you know, if there is an IPO, it's worth $2 trillion. I mean, it's ludicrous. Well, apparently, according to the Saudis. Problem is, is we don't actually know what reserves Saudi Arabia have got and all sorts of kind of opaque stuff. I'm not sure the IPO will ever happen. But one thing I do know is they're trying to get a bond deal away this year. And it feels like they're trying to put the prices up so that they can show some NPV of their oil reserves at a higher rate. And then they can allow oil to fall later and get a bit of cash in. So uh, it's fascinating times right now. As you say, I think it's one of the best risk reward trades in the world. When I I first read The the World is Flat by by Friedman, I think it was 2003, we were, what shocked me is we were, just in the aftermath of uh, the dot-com. And just the word dot-com had a bitter, bitter feeling. You know, a lot of people had lost money. And what the book basically told you is, listen, we've had a phenomenal revolution, which is changing the world. That led to a lot of money going into the sector, which pushed valuations up to a point where you have overcapacity and you know, overvaluations. But what was fascinating to me is that when the bubble collapsed, two things happened. I mean, one is all that technology, all that investment, in particular the internet broadband, stayed. So you don't you didn't go and pull it out. It was there. But the critical thing is that they were invested on the basis of very high return expectations, but all those assets were written off. So what you had, it was virtually free internet across the world, pretty much, you know. And that opened the world to uh, having an accountant in India who could do in the offshoring and China and India. So the world became flat in that way. So when I, that concept stayed very much in the back of my mind, how powerful the bubble was effectively accelerating the impact of the internet revolution by many years. So when Fukushima happened, which is a, a terrible disaster, the naturally the government shut down nuclear overnight, but not just in Germany, it's sorry, in, in, in Japan, also in other parts of the world. Now, what it meant is Japan had to keep going. So what it did is they started to burn more coal, they started to look for alternatives, and they even were burning some crude oil just to, to get the power generation they needed. But the coal market could absorb that shock relatively easily. But the LNG market couldn't. And the, it couldn't because of the following reason. You know, to gas you can transport through a pipeline in, in gas form, or if you're doing very long distance, you can transport it in liquid form. So historically what happened is you would have a 30-year take-or-pay arrangement. Listen, I'm going to spend this $5, $10 billion to build these this plants. I will take the gas you know, liquefy it, and then you need to take it. And if you don't take it, you pay for it. And precisely because of this system, it's what I call the male-female, there's no, uh, there were no other people available in the system to take that gas if there were, you know, there was no spare liquefaction or their spare uh, regas. So it was a market that was very matched. So when suddenly, uh, Japan goes out and says, listen, guys, I need more gas. It created a very large imbalance because suddenly you had a male or a female bidding up for, guys, I want this gas. So you really need to take that gas away from somewhere else and those guys will need to source it. So for the gas market, it was very disruptive. 
and we prices went you know plus twenty dollars a MBTU, which is you know over one hundred and twenty dollars per barrel equivalent. The amazing thing is that at exactly the same time, natural gas in the U.S. was trading at two dollars a MBTU. So two dollars a MBTU in the U.S., twenty dollars a MBTU in Japan. Guess what happened? If you're Australia, you say, "All right, we have all this gas that is stranded." You know, there's a tremendous amount of, of demand, not just from Japan, but also China, Korea, etc., Taiwan. So let's build plants. And so started with some very large projects, over half a trillion dollars in LNG. And Australia is not alone because this is the other thing that tends to happen in the energy market. Everybody thinks I'm the only guy, I'm the only one doing it. Now, in the meantime, a place like uh, Israel or Cyprus make major discovery on the Libyathan uh, field, which effectively makes them large exporters of, of gas, very ironic. Um, and, and that was happening everywhere, in, in, in Africa, in, in you know, Trinidad and Tobago, in, in Angola, and you, you name it, Russia, I mean, everywhere, all these gas suddenly looked very appealing and people started to make large investments in LNG. So if you fast forward a few years, what you see is that we're talking about very, very large investments. Some of them, Qatar was the first country to ever build trains without a taker. They were the one to say, okay, I will develop these fields and we will find a market for them. And if you draw the parallelism with the internet broadband, we're building a very large network of pipelines as well as you know, land pipelines, as well as floating pipelines, which is what this uh, LNG is. They're floating pipelines. They give you the flexibility to go to different places. But they were built on the basis of uh, $15, $20 MMBTU gas. Already today, we're at 10, 12. Gas in the US is at three. MBP is in the middle. It's possible that in the next few years, as this wave of supply comes in, the price of LNG will, will, will go farther down. And a bit like the internet, what you will see is a very large write-off of uh, gas assets. But what it does is it makes this excess supply brings you know, more uh, certainty of supply and it brings prices lower. So the world has never really had a large amount of gas to rely on. Uh, it's always been you know, very domestic and and I think this is one of the key game changers, one of the flatteners that combined with geopolitics is creating what we call the energy broadband. The energy broadband being a large network of optionality for the world to trade. And this is the, the channel by which the world flattens, is by having excess capacity in transportation and production, which will find a way and that will make prices converge. So this for me was the big aha moment. Suddenly seeing this, the, the, the internet, uh, you know, the, the, the broadband collapse and what happened was writing off all of the capital in that space. It meant that anybody who bought it, all the distressed buyers, could essentially produce broadband for nothing for everybody forever. And the same thing, I mean, he was a little bit early in this, the same thing started to play out in gas and uh, oil, where, you know, suddenly there was a massive amount last year of of distressed deals that took place. Now, those guys basically write down the cost of capital. It didn't get written down enough, which I think we've got another wave of this all to come. But you write down the cost of capital, and what happens is all this infrastructure that costs billions and billions and billions, you know, from all of this kind of money floating around the world, from, from the Fed printing presses and all of the central bank actions, gets written down to nothing. 
But the world benefits in the end because suddenly we get enormous amounts more gas and oil that is available on tap at much lower prices. Hence, one of the reasons why the cost of production for shale comes down all the time is because anybody who goes out of business actually drives down the prices. It's incredibly deflationary. I just think it's really yeah, clever. You, you and I... You and I- you and I spoke about this at the time when we both watched the interview, and, and you know I, I remember that conversation very clearly. And, and it's funny because all those assets, you know, WorldCom and all those companies that that went belly up, Global Crossing that built this incredible backbone around the world, um, we saw this time around the, the frantic efforts to not allow that to happen. And not so much because it isn't creative destruction in the best possible way, but because the system was just too fragile to allow that to happen. But you're you're a great student of cycles, and this is a cycle just like any other, this boom-bust commodity cycle. And it and it wants to bust. You know, at some point, the, the forces that are going to make this want to bust because you you just cannot increase production the way they've been doing through technology without lowering the prices and without causing a lot of these companies that have levered themselves up to get in on it, as as Diego so rightly pointed out, at the wrong point in time, so that their assets are just coming online when the price is busting. Unless that happens, and the forces are going to dictate that it does happen at some point, you don't get that clearing price, you don't get the riding off of the assets, and you don't get um, this energy broadband um, being essentially zero cost for everybody. So you know, to me, it's an absolute certainty that we get there at some point. These assets will get written down because People always invest the most at the wrong point in the cycle. That's just that's just the way it is. You know, the higher prices attract investment, and and around we go. So I'm fascinated to watch that play out. I'm fascinated to see um, those forces uh, pick up momentum, and I'm interested to see the battle between uh, governments and central banks trying to stop that bust taking place, knowing that it will create all sorts of problems in in, a, in an environment now where we're so much more over levered than we were back in 2000, even. Um, and, and the natural forces that, that want that to happen. So it's going to be a fascinating battle to watch. To me, there's only one way this ends, and it is with some kind of bust at some point in the cycle. Um, and I just don't know when it happens. But but to your point, listening to that, as Diego was sitting there talking to me in that room, you know, the light bulb went off in my head. I just hadn't thought about it in those terms before. And I'm sure many people listening to this now are going to be sitting there thinking, wow, you know, that's a really interesting way to think about this. Yeah, and I think the other thing that you're talking about is Something that I have been thinking about and and written about extensively is I thought that the distressed buyers, i.e. the private equity funds, the Blackstones and and all of the guys who are involved in this, Apollos and Carlyles, they bought energy assets too quickly. So they bought in 2015, 16, as much as they could on debt as ever. And I don't think this game has played out yet. And so I think everybody after 2008 thinks that they're a distressed buyer. You know, anything, you know, the S&P falls more than the percent, you feel like a distressed buyer by buying yeah. it. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's right. ludicrous. And every family office that I know, every hedge fund, they're like, no, no, you've got to buy this stuff. You know, everybody thinks mean reversion um, is always in play. And it, it usually is. But where is the mean? It's not necessarily at the all-time high, because that, by definition, is not the mean. I mean, the mean price for oil over the last, you know, you know, inflation adjusted over the last 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, is probably closer to 30 than it is to 100. And so I think that there's been a, quite a few stupid mistakes with other people's money being made. And, you know, let's see, because when we have a recession and we have a falling price of oil, then everything gets revealed. 
Wow, Grant, you know, there's so much um, to digest there from that interview. Uh, I remember when I was going through the clips, I think there were like three or four other clips that I wanted you and Raul to comment on, but, you know, that would have spilled way over time. Uh, but what really strikes me here is is sort of the high dimensionality of this of the problem that we're we're looking at, and and uh, and it's brilliant how Diego wraps it all up very neatly with this internet analogy. Now I want to ask you, how do you feel about using that sort of analogy to explain what's happening in the energy markets? Because obviously you're dealing with different technology and different times. So how, how, what's your general perception about using analogies for perhaps different markets and different technologies? Well, I think they're really useful things to do. I mean, uh, you, you, regular listeners will know that I'm a, I'm a great fan of history, and I read as much history as I can. So you know, history uh, is a great um, analogous tool to figure all this stuff out. And I think Diego's was particularly poignant because it's exactly what happened back in the 2000s. All this money into this new technology um, was was spent and valuations jumped accordingly but but when the boom um, finished and the bust was actually allowed to happen and I touched on this in, in the conversation once you allow those busts to happen and, and the markets get to clear you do have this incredible backbone uh, for the future so I think Diego's use of that analogy um, is such a great way of explaining it and and when the uh, when the full interview ran on Real Vision originally, I had so many people email me and say, "Well, you know, I've never thought of it in those terms." But as soon as you hear that, it just makes all the sense in the world. So I, I, th- I think it's a great tool to use, and I think Diego does it absolutely brilliantly. Uh, yeah, you're completely right, and I think it was really interesting how you and Raul brought it to present day and in, in talking about the uh, the record exposure to oil and and uh, what that could mean for oil going forward. So uh, that was an excellent interview, and, and thanks for providing your comments on that. Well, look, coming up next um, is, I think, uh, everybody's favorite segment of the show, Things I Got Wrong, um, where we must speak with uh, a bunch of market experts about mistakes they've made. And this is something that you get the chance all too rarely to do these days, is hear from people um, and try and learn lessons, because no one likes to talk about things they got wrong. So uh, this week, our guest is Michael Lewitt. He writes The Credit Strategist. Um, he's a brilliant, brilliant thinker um, and, a, and a super guy. And so we spoke to Michael uh, to, to get him to enlighten us on one of the mistakes that he's made. All right. So with us this week is Michael Lewitt, uh, who is a Real Vision TV and Real Vision Publish, uh, Publications contributor. Uh, Michael, you're a prolific writer, so I'm not going to try and list all things, but I'll actually try and get you to do that. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Sure. Um, I uh, Well, I started um, in the investment management business in the early 90s. Um, and I've managed money pretty, con- you know, with, with one small sabbatical in 2011. Uh, since then, I started in the credit markets. I actually started my investment career at Drexel Burnham um, in the late 80s. Um, and um, I have written a publication called The, the Credit Strategist since um, 2001. Uh, I also write two other publications uh, with Money Map Press in Baltimore. One is called Sure Money, which is an e letter that is published uh, usually twice a week on various topics uh, in the market. Usually one is a, a sort of a market review-based thing, and the other is just whatever topic uh, I feel like writing on. And then I have a, a short-selling service called Zenith Trading Circle uh, that I uh, every week I recommend a, um, a company that I think is, uh, uh, is going to have problems. So I have a fairly um, large publishing business that I write. And, you know, what I've always explained to people, because I, I've gotten the question that has always sort of aggravated me, although I'm told I'm fairly easily aggravated because I'm a cranky old dog, is that 
um, you know, people ask, well, are you a writer or are you a fund manager? And to me, that's always been one of the stupidest questions I've ever heard. People process information different ways. I process it by writing. If I can't write and explain something, then I don't understand it. So that's how I think. Other people uh, read things over and over again. I had a partner who used to, you know, obsessively read over 10Ks and 10Qs. I process information very quickly, but I regurgitate it in writing, and that's how I understand it, and that's how I dig through it and explore it. So for me, writing is an integral part of, of how I manage money, and uh, it has always served me extremely well. If I can't explain something in writing, um, I don't understand it. And so that's how I make sure I, uh, I work through, through things. So I do that. I also manage a, uh, right now I manage a um, hedge fund called Third Friday Total Return Fund. That's an options fund. It's done very well. Um, and I have other business activities as well. So um, I, keep, I keep busy. Great. So... Uh... What you're describing there with the writing actually sort of reminds me of the Feynman method of learning, where if you, he, I think he said, Richard Feynman, who's a physicist, yes, he sure. said, yeah, if you can't explain something, you probably don't understand it well enough. Um, well, that, that's how it is for teachers, you know. It's like if you have to get up in front and give a lecture and you have to answer a question, if you can't answer it, you don't know what you're doing. So you have to really, it, you know, thinking is about organizing your thoughts and writing is about organizing your thoughts and being able to express them. You have to, and there's no, you can't fake it. You can't fake it. It just it ain't gonna work. So that's how I do it. Yeah, and we don't want to fake it here at Real Vision. So part of not faking it is to actually acknowledge the mistakes that we've made and to try and learn from them. So my second question to you, Michael, is: you know, Can you describe a time when you faced uh, maybe an, an, a significant investing challenge in the past, or even possibly a mistake you made? Well, I, I, I like to tell people. You know, I spent a lot of time in the uh, high yield bond market, and I have the stripes on my back to prove it. Uh, so. Uh, I've made plenty of mistakes, and one of the things I like to tell people is if you haven't made mistakes and you haven't lost money, you're not a real investor because everybody, especially the greatest investors, have, have of course, lost money. I would say probably the worst investment I made personally was, um, was the following. Um, our firm made an investment in a company called Premier Cruises, which was a, a company that decided it had the brilliant idea which we didn't figure out was not brilliant, of taking old ships. This was in, um, God, when was this? In the 90s. Of taking old ships that were very beautiful, old, grand old ships, and putting them together into a new cruise line and competing with things like Disney and Carnival and all that. And the problem was these ships, um, among other things, were very inefficient from a fuel standpoint. And so uh, we made the initial investment, and rather than making the decision of just writing off our loss, which would have been a few million dollars, a couple million dollars, we uh, decided to double down. We took over the company. We went on the board, and we ended up turning, you know, like a $2 million loss into like a $10 million loss, which was really stupid. And uh, the lesson, you know, the lesson was pretty obvious, is that, you know, often your first loss is your, is your best loss. Second of all, um, there was another lesson, which is that, you, you know, you usually end up, if you're running, this is for a credit portfolio, it, 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 it applies differently for what I'm doing now. When you're running a credit portfolio, you always end up spending 80% of your time on your 20% worse investments. You know, things that are doing fine, you, don't, you know, you don't need to worry about. So from an opportunity cost, from a psychological cost, um, when you make a mistake, it's almost indescribable how 
much it costs you in terms of time, energy, uh, lost, lost other opportunities, and so on. And you're so much better off just taking your loss. What I like to think of is, you know, if you look at a guy who I have a lot of admiration for because I think he's really smart, like Bill Ackman, you know, he got caught in Valiant Pharmaceuticals, and you can, I can't even imagine what that's cost him just in terms of all the time he's had to spend to dig out of that when if he had taken his initial loss and, like, had, you know, gotten out when the thing was like $115, you know, instead of writing it down another $100, how much better off he would have been. But the problem is, and this is natural, when you make a mistake in this business, you know, none of us have small egos. We all think we're really smart. So you think you can fix it. You always think you can fix it. You know what? Something can't be fixed. And, I, you know, I study businesses for a living, and I study a lot of businesses. They can't be fixed. Something like Valiant can't be fixed. Premier Cruises couldn't be fixed. Um, Sears can't be fixed. Eddie Lampert basically destroyed his hedge fund because he thought he could fix Sears. Sears is terminal. And so um, I lived that, and I learned the lesson. And so from a, you know, I've learned that, you know, if you have a loss, something's not working out, Take the loss and move on because you're going to end up, even if it's some, there's some miraculous thing that's going to happen with a business that's going to turn around, um, it's going to cost you in other ways. And you, you, just have to, um, you just have to accept that you made a mistake. And the first thing you need to do is sort of triage it. And then you can go back and later, you know, if you want to spend time sort of doing a postmortem and everything, you should. That's very healthy. But you're not, things just, businesses don't miraculously heal. I mean, the, the turnarounds, if you want to invest in a turnaround, you want to come from the outside and do that. But if you're stuck in it, it's very, very difficult. The odds are so much against you. So that was a mistake. It, it really damaged a very successful fund we had and um, did not turn out well for us because we decided we thought we could fix it. So, so Michael, you mentioned ego as one of the uh, culprits. Uh, in, in the past or, or, or culprits that, that influence uh, adversely uh, investors' decisions on their investments and their losses. So going forward and, and based off of that experience and, and now moving forward, how do you, how do you look at your ego or, or temper it and, and uh, pay attention to the signs when it's telling you uh, that you, maybe this is not the time to listen to, uh, to your ego? Well, you know, it's funny. I'm, I'm sort of in a different business now. I'm really out of the credit business. And there are a bunch of reasons for that. But when you're not investing in individual securities, um, you, um, it's a little easier. But uh, I, I do two things now. So, you know, I have an options fund, and I also have a, uh, a, a strategy that's uh, based on an artificial intelligence um, program. And so, for example, last December, and it's happening right now again, uh, the artificial intelligence program has been wrong like five days in a row. It's been short while the market's going up in our face. And so back in December, we had this happen. And uh, the guy who developed the program is literally like probably one of the 10 smartest guys on the planet. So, you know, we're going, oh, my God, you know, it's down. And, and you know, it's, uh, you know, so the, it, it tells us whether to go long or short the market on a 24-hour basis. So, you know, it's a very short window kind of thing. So they're saying, well, you know, what do you want to do? And I said, look, the minute I think I'm smarter than the machine and smarter than uh, the guy, um, I might as well just get out of the business. I said, we develop, you know, this thing was developed. We know it works, and it works over long periods of time, and we just have to trust it. 
And it's the same with my options strategy. It's been, you know, we're going to have our 10th anniversary of the fund in, um, in May. And it's, a, it's like 80% rules-based, 20% non-rules-based. And so, you know, we have invested ourselves in, um, in these sort of rules-based things that in many ways eliminate the emotion and eliminate the ego. And while at times you're tempted to say, oh, well, the machine says go short, but you'll look at the rally, it's going up every day, you have to have the discipline and the humility to say, you know, what the hell do I know? It's like, you know, we have thousands of hours invested in these things, and I'm not going to overrule it. And um, so I've just learned that, uh, you know, you know, I, what do I know? I mean, I, you know, I, you know I, I'm just very, um, what's the word? I'm, you know, I'm just a, a flawed human being, and I wouldn't dare to think for a second that I'm smarter than, than either the, 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 um, the, the methodologies and strategies that we've developed over, you know, years and everything. Um, you know, I sometimes write about this. You know, if you're investing and, you're, and it's making you feel comfortable, you're probably not doing it right. You usually need to be really uncomfortable when you're investing to be getting it right. Because um, the world is not out there to, to, to um, meet your needs. You have, to, you have to figure out what's going on. And often um, it's a very uncomfortable feeling to be doing the right thing. You know, I, you know, I listen to you know, Kyle Bass, who's a brilliant guy. I listen to his, um, his Real Vision interviews all the time, over and over, because he's so honest about sort of how self-critical he is and how he examines himself. And I think it comes across very well how tough this a thing this is to do and how you really have to examine yourself. And, you know, I don't get the sense that Kyle's, you know, living it up. <laughs> I mean, he's really suffering. And you know, I don't want to speak for him, but, you know, I sort of feel the same way. So even though I have systems that I rely on, a lot of the time I'm extremely uncomfortable, even when I'm trusting the system. But but the systems work, so I just do that. And it's a, it, if you, it's, it's a lot more reliable than relying on your ego and your emotions and all that because they're extremely unreliable. So after hearing that, I, I, I got a familiar feeling, and it's the same feeling I got after watching your Real Vision TV interview with Grant. And it's just, you know, for you've 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 been participating in the markets, analyzing the markets for decades, and and you feel this way. So I feel tremendously humbled, uh, just as as a market observer and participant myself, uh, given the few years that I've I've been doing this. But uh, Michael, that that's tremendous uh, tremendous uh, wisdom for for the listeners. Uh, where can where can they find uh, your work uh, and your writings? Or even on social media on Twitter. Well, I, I rumor has it I have a Twitter handle, but my uh, my team back in uh, Baltimore handles that, and I don't. I, I found Twitter to be way too. Um, what's the word? It riled me up too much, and so I got off it years ago. Um, but they they put out things about the market. Um, I honestly don't know what my Twitter handle is. But um, there's uh, a Sure Money website, um, and uh, there's a website for the credit strategist, uh, www.thecreditstrategist.com. All these are run by Money Map Press now. I handed over all the logistics and everything for the credit strategist uh, back in December because it just was getting to be too much. And uh, I believe there's a Zenith Trading Circle um, um, one there also. 
um, they handle all that, honestly. I'm, at this point, I'm really just trying to do the work, and, uh, and then they handle all the logistics, which is very, very helpful for me. All right, great. Well, we'll be sure to include those links in, uh, in the show notes uh, so that people can find you. But, uh, Michael, thanks for joining us. It's uh, my pleasure. I, uh, Real Vision's a really terrific thing, so I'm honored to be included. Well, Grant, you know, the, uh, when, he, when Michael talks about the premier cruises, I almost wish that had worked out because when I look out to the window on my left, all I see are these cruise ships that all look the same, whether it's Disney or, you know, Royal Caribbean, they all look the same. It would have been nice to see some of these old refurbished ships uh, to, you know, I guess change the scenery a little bit. Yeah, well, look, I mean, I think the, the, the crucial lesson um, of Michael's day about the first loss being the best loss, I, mean, I, I was... I learned that the easy way and the hard way very, very early in my career. Um, I, I learned it the easy way by being told it and learned the hard way by ignoring it until I found out through experience. And, it, and it's it's such an important lesson, you know, the, the, the humility uh, and the lack of hubris to admit that you're wrong. The sooner you do it, um, the less expensive it gets. And uh, I think Michael um, elaborates on that brilliantly. Yeah. And, and one of my other favorite um, pieces of advice that he gave was just in terms of managing your ego and 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 trying to avoid the pitfall and thinking that you can always fix it, um, you know, it, it's something that's just important to move on. And um, and managing your ego is something that I think is is difficult, as I said in the interview, because it requires a level of introspection and self awareness that I think most people don't stop to 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 think about, or at least uh, to to ponder. So uh, that was a great experience talking to Michael. Well, we, we, at the end of the day, every, every time you uh, you invest, you're making a guess about the future. I mean, the, the guess is sometimes educated, hopefully, uh, and a lot of the times it's it's thoroughly researched. But at the end of the day, you still don't know. So it really should be the easiest thing in the world to admit when you're wrong because you had no right to know what was going to happen. But but again, you know, that, that ego gets into things and, and it really can get in people's way. So the, the sooner investors understand that and are willing to say, you know what, hey, I, I was wrong about something that I had, I had no guarantee that I'd be right about. It's, uh, it, it's such a great lesson to, uh, to learn. And this feels like the right time to remind you guys that anything you heard on the show should not be considered as trading advice. These are our opinions and the opinions of our contributors only. So do your fundamental research, chart your technicals, and trade responsibly. All right. Well, amazingly, Aaron, we've reached the end of another episode of Adventures in Finance. Uh, we'll be back next week with our regular features, uh, Long and Short, and The Things I Got Wrong. And our feature will do a deep dive into the post-Trump reflation theme. Now, we're going to look at whether that's real or not and where we might be headed next. If you've got an interesting question about this week's show, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, please send us an email or leave us a voice note at podcast at realvisiontv.com. If you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe on iTunes and please leave us a review. It really helps out. And to keep up to date with the latest interviews, research publications, and podcast episodes, you can follow us on Twitter at Real Vision. You can also find us hanging out on Facebook and LinkedIn. Just put in a search for Real Vision. And you can follow me on Twitter at, at TTMYGH. You can follow me at Macrodidact. That's it from us, and we'll see you next week. podcast listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads go to lipsandads.com now that's l-i-b-s-y-n ads.com